Welcome to Change Nation, a program brought to you by First30Days.com. On this episode of Change Nation, Ariane talks with infant expert and best-selling author Dr. Harvey Karp. Here's Ariane. To some, Dr. Harvey Karp is known as the baby whisperer. To others, he's a real lifesaver. Karp is a renowned pediatrician and creator of the best-selling books and DVDs, The Happiest Baby on the Block and The Happiest Toddler on the Block, which contain groundbreaking techniques to calm fussy babies in minutes, add hours to their sleep, and also boost any toddler's patience, respect, and cooperation in just days. His books are actually the most read parenting books in America. He's even taught these techniques to celebrity parents like Madonna, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Pierce Brosnan. Today, he's here with me in the studio on Change Nation, and he's here to talk about his latest edition of the book, The Happiest Toddler on the Block, and to share some of his inside tips to help all these new moms, new dads, navigate the bumpy road that is parenthood. Welcome, Harvey. Thank you, Ryan. So where did this gift of understanding babies, toddlers come from? Was it natural? Was it intuitive to you? Was it through research? It was, it was my studies, actually. I mean, when I was studying, um, I studied um, pediatrics. I worked at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York and then um, uh, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. But then I did two years of study of child development at UCLA. And part of that, we were taught to sit and watch. Well, I'd sit next to the crib of a baby in the in the nursery and just watch them for an hour when they <laughs> kind of yawn. And, but just to see how do they respond. Um, and then same thing with toddlers and older children. To start observing not just kids in the hospital who are ill, but to be able to better understand kids in their natural habitat. Actually, I got to spend some time um, in uh, Cambridge at the Cambridge Child Care Center. And literally three days a week, I would go to the child care center and play with the kids and learn, again, not just what ill kids are like, but what do normal kids look like in their normal relationships. And, and so, um, so I was trained to be an observer. Did you immediately start seeing what made a baby happy and calm versus another one that would just cry all the time? Not really. I mean, that, I kind of started to get interested in baby calming when, because when I, when I was trained um, uh, initially at the Einstein and, and Children's Hospital, I was taught if a baby cried, you go for a car ride, you turn on the vacuum, you rock them. But if that didn't work, we actually would prescribe medicine for the baby, like phenobarbital or even opium. We would prescribe opium for babies. This is 35 years ago. Now, of course, I'd be put in jail for doing what was normal medical care. But um, then um, I learned about a tribe in Africa called the Kung San. And the Kung are a hunter-gatherer tribe. And in studies of the Kung parenting, it was found that they could calm their fussy babies in under a minute, 95% of the time, usually in under 15 seconds. We would be telling our parents that kids will cry two or three or four hours a day and there's nothing you could do about it. But when I learned that the Kung were so successful, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it was apparent to me that one of two things had to be the case. Either the Kung babies were mutant babies, different from our babies, or those parents knew something that we had forgotten. And at that point, it was kind of like a detective story for me. So okay, was, so yeah. What so I started know? researching. Well. To really cut to the quick, it turns out that moms 
have been doing successful techniques forever, rocking babies, wrapping them, walking with them, shushing them. These things are written about in any parenting text, and that's what the Kunsan do. They do all those things. Plus, they nurse the babies three or four times an hour, 50 to 100 times a day, much more than we do in our culture. I'm not saying we should do it 50 to 100 times a day, but that is what babies are expecting. That's what normal human beings are supposed to do. Um, anyway, it turns out these things have been known for a long time, but for some babies in our culture, they just didn't work. And no one could ever figure that puzzle out. And what I finally came to was the idea that they weren't working because the technique had to be so perfect. When you do the technique perfectly, you can actually calm any baby, even colicky babies, over and over again in minutes or seconds. And what I discovered is that babies are born with a calming reflex, with an off switch for crying and an on switch for sleep. And when you learn how to trigger this reflex, although you do have to do it exactly, but when you learn how to trigger it, you can calm any fussy baby. It's no different than a knee reflex. If you hit the knee in the right place, the foot goes out 100 times in a row. But if you're off by half an inch, you don't get half a reflex or a third of a reflex. You get none. And so parents have been so frustrated because they thought they were doing it right and it didn't work. And with just a little tweak of the, of the technique, they can get much better. So is the calming reflex something that you can explain here? Is it something that we can, we can talk about? Sure. I mean, the calming, well, it's better seen than heard. Um, it's a little bit like tying your shoelaces. I could tell you how to do it, and, I, and I'm happy to. I mean, basically, with your knee reflex, there's one way to trigger it. Um, with a whack in the right place. But with the calming reflex, there are five ways to turn it on. They're called the five S's. So it's swaddling, which is tight wrapping with the arms down, shushing, which is a shh, a loud hissy sound, kind of like a vacuum cleaner sound. Because the sound in the uterus is actually louder than, a, twice as loud as a vacuum cleaner. Shh, 24-7. The third S um, is the um, side or stomach position. The back is the best position for sleeping, but it's the worst position for a fussy baby. Um, then the next S is swinging or rhythmic motion. And then the last is sucking. And those are the ingredients for the recipe. And every child's a little different. You need to add a little more shushing or a little bit more wrapping or a little bit more jiggly motion. But if you don't do the S correctly, not only may it not work, but it may even make the baby cry more. So if you wrap a baby, but you do it too loose, It'll make your baby cry more, not less. If you shush and it's not the right uh, volume or kind of frequency, it does nothing. Just like hitting a knee reflex and being off by an inch, it does nothing. And so what's so fun about this, it's frustrating when you do it wrong and then you feel incompetent, but when you do it right, you go, man, I got this, you know? And in fact, um, we're teaching this in teen parenting programs and programs all around the country, military programs, child abuse prevention programs, postpartum depression programs, because crying babies, it's not just a nuisance problem. It's a serious cause of illness and death in our culture. When babies cry a lot, the parents fail at breastfeeding, they're stressed out in their marriage, they don't relate well to their babies, they get more depressed, they um, are more likely to injure their babies by shaking them. There are a lot of really serious n problems that occur with, with crying babies. And on the other hand, when parents learn how to calm the crying, actually they want to be with their kids, they feel confident, they like the kids, they feel like the kids like them. And so it helps move all of parenting into a, into a much more positive 
balance. And in fact, we now have 2,600 educators mm -hmm. teaching Happiest Baby classes, or soon to teach Happiest Baby classes, in hospitals and clinics and military bases and teen parenting programs around the world. What, what are things that parents do that they should not do? That are, you, you see parents do certain things to calm a crying baby and you're like, oh, I wish they wouldn't be doing that. What are some that come to mind? Well, um, it's not so much that they're doing the wrong things, they're kind of doing the right things incorrectly. So for example, the most common thing that happens is the baby's crying, the baby's on the back, and the mother is kind of rocking the baby back and forth going, it's okay, it's okay, shh, 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 or something like that. The baby's on the back, which is a, 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 a disconcerting position for a baby. They feel like they're falling. So when they're crying and on the back, it's even more upsetting for them. Um, the shushing isn't loud enough that they're doing. Um, and if you don't get to the loud enough level, you may as well be a thousand miles away. It's never going to work. So how loud should it be? Um, when it, you kind of do it almost as loud as the baby's crying. Let the baby be your guide. So when they're screaming, it's got to be pretty loud. Otherwise, they can't even hear you. So you start out at that intensity, and as they calm down, shh, you can lower it down. Same thing with movement. At first, it's jiggly, not shaken baby. It's like a little um, quiver or um, just an inch back and forth. And as they calm down, then you can slow it down. In terms of actually getting a baby to sleep, was, we talked about the crying. Mm -hmm. Is it a combination of these five S's as well, or are there other tools? For sleep, it's primarily two of the tools. It's um, swaddling all night long in a big blanket. If it's too small a blanket, they pop out. And white noise. That's an interesting thing. Since, since my work came out in 2002, everybody knows about swaddling. And there are about 10 different types of swaddling blankets that you can buy. But very few people have picked up on the idea of how important white noise is. White noise meaning like that shh kind of a sound all night long. And when you start that with a baby at one or two weeks of age, and in fact, we made a CD that has some specially engineered sounds that are especially effective to calm crying babies, two sounds that cr calm crying, and three sounds that you can play all night to help keep babies asleep. If you use the swaddling and that type of white noise, with starting at a week or two of age, you can teach babies to sleep an extra one or two or three hours at night. So that's phenomenal help. One of the things we know about postpartum depression is that you're more likely to get depressed if you have a very fussy baby and if you're exhausted. So if you can get a couple of hours extra sleep at night, man, that can make all the difference. Sure. The white noise, is that something you gradually like wean off the baby? Like should a baby not be listening to that past a certain age? I'm so glad you asked that because people are really confused about that. A lot of people go, what? I don't want my baby addicted to that or they'll get dependent on it. Um, and they worry about this thing called a bad sleep association or a habit. Mm -hmm. Not realizing that we've got plenty of sleep. I mean, like, do you sleep with a pillow? Of course, yes. Okay. Do you like your pillow or go sleep on any pillow? Can you sleep on a hard pillow and a soft pillow? Does it make no, a difference? I'm more a soft pillow. You're more a soft pillow. Well, does that mean you're addicted to your pillow? Or is it just something that, you know, I mean, I travel with my pillow. I just like the feel of it. Am I addicted to it? I don't know, maybe I am, but I don't know if that's a problem. You know, we like to sleep in beds. Do you sleep on the floor as well as you sleep on a bed? I mean, I know that you're an outdoors woman, yes. but, um, oh, I <laughs> but the, the fact of the matter is most of us have these sleep associations mm -hmm. and we don't call them addictions. And babies, you, you don't mind, I don't mind using things to help a baby sleep as long as I'm in control of it. So for example, by four or five months, 
I don't like babies always falling asleep with a, with a pacifier in the mouth because then they start to spit it out or toss it out and then they cry, you know, get my pacifier, you know, and the parents are putting 12 pacifiers in the crib hoping that their child can find one. So pacifiers are something you're not in control of and I don't want kids to get used to always getting that for sleep at night. White noise, on the other hand, you have total control over. And what's wonderful about white noise, besides helping babies sleep well, when you continue that throughout the first year, it will prevent sleeping problems that happen when the babies start to teethe or they go through a growth spurt. And you know what? It's just like, I don't know if you get headaches at all, but when you get a headache and it throbs, if you're lying down in a quiet room, boom, boom, you feel it more. If there's some commotion or you're about, you know, you just are not paying as much attention to it. When babies are um, having some throbbing of their gums, if there's white noise playing, they don't pay attention to it so much. They can sleep better, not, not as disturbed. They don't hear the sounds outside, people talking, airplanes going by, and they tend not to be disturbed by those internal sounds. So it's a wonderful trick to help prevent the sleep concerns that are so common in kids in the second half of the first year. So white noise definitely better than any type of music. Oh yeah, no question about it. Music is nice lullaby stuff, that's nice, and that is also a sleep association. If you always sing the same lullaby when you put your baby to sleep, when they hear that as part of that bedtime routine, they're going to go, yeah, I get it, I know what's coming up. But once they're asleep, they need something. Now, people think, well, my baby's sleeping, why does she really need the sound? But when you're asleep, you're not comatose. Can you hear the phone ring when you're asleep? No. You can't. No. Can you hear the alarm clock go off? Yes. Okay. So you're not in coma. You can hear certain things. Mm -hmm. Most people can hear the phone ring as well. Some people can even hear the cars going by or the ambulance. Even other people don't. But you he can hear some things. Babies hear the nothingness. And it's disconcerting to them. They're from a place in the uterus where they have sound 24-7. And this is one of the giant misconceptions people have about babies. They say, babies cry because they're overstimulated. That's not true. I mean, if you bang pots next to their head or slam the door, yeah, they're going to cry. But they mostly cry because they're understimulated. They're missing the rhythmic, hypnotic, calming, entrancing stimulation that turns on their calming reflex. Are there any differences you've noticed between a baby boy and a baby girl? Um, there are some differences that have been seen, not in terms of crying so much, but um, babies, even from the first day of life, girls are shown to be more interested in faces and social orientation. Boys are more interested in objects. Um, and so that's, that's been demonstrated, but uh, it's, a, it's a subtle difference. Anything around colors? I know typically we like paint a room a certain color for, for kids. Anything that's more calming or less stimulating or... Uh, not really about colors. The babies don't have very good color vision in the beginning. Um, so you may have seen these little baby toys they have that are black and white geometrical patterns mm -hmm. because babies primarily pay attention to contrast more than color. Um, they can see red, they can see black and white pretty much. Um, that's the limit of their palette in the beginning. But lavender is kind of nice. I mean, lavender is calming. I mean, it's certainly calming for parents and it may well be calming for babies too. Harvey, what's the connection between happy parents and a happy baby like have you seen a couple be sp particularly happy and have that translate to the baby and sort of vice versa where parents are not that happy people they're not optimistic maybe they're fighting together and yet they have a really happy baby yeah like, is there a connection yeah there is 
I mean, there's several connections to that. One is something we call temperament. All of us are born with a, with kind of a tendency towards certain personalities. Some of us are very enthusiastic. Some of us are very, kind of we go with the flow. Some of us are very sensitive, and some of us aren't sensitive at all. Sensitive to foods. Oh my God, I can taste the rosemary in that. Or yeah, this tastes pretty good. You know, I mean, you know. Okay. We have different qualities of our personality, and babies are born with that, and a large part of that is inherited from the parents. So if the parents are really hyper-energetic and very sensitive, they may have a baby who is very energetic and sensitive, which can be great when they're one year old, but they can't deal with the world very well when they're little babies, and they need more rhythm and more rocking and more white noise to be able to handle all of the stimulation they're getting in the world. So that's one way it's related. Another way is anxiety. People think that the baby picks up the anxiety of the mother. Actually, that's not true. They're not sharks. They can't smell the blood in the water, you know. Or I mean, they they don't know. Are you anxious? Are you angry? Are you frustrated? They're not. They don't have good ability to interpret your psychological makeup. They can't even burp without help. I mean, you know. Yeah. So, but what happens when you're anxious is that you jump from one thing to another. You don't have confidence in what you're doing, and um, and that means you may not do things to the completion to the level that you really need to do it. And so with baby calming in particular, if you're not doing exactly right. It just falls apart, and then you get more anxious, and it becomes a negatively hmm. reinforcing cycle. So in those ways, it can be related. Beautiful. Javier, in our next segment, we're going to shift a little bit to the older kids, to toddlers. You're listening to Change Nation. I'm Ariane. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Change Nation. I'm Ariane and I've been talking to Dr. Harvey Karp about how to calm your baby, how to get your baby to stop crying. We're going to shift a little bit towards toddlers in just one second. One of the things we were talking about on the break was how good dads are mm -hmm. at calming babies and just yeah. being great. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, with these five S's, they're, they're very particular. You kind of have to do them in the right way. And guys really get their minds around that. You know, the swaddling is like an engineering task. And, you know, guys are like, tell me the five things to do and I can do that. We're, we're, we don't want to fail and we're kind of scared with little babies if we don't have experience with them. But once we're good at it, it's like we're proud, you know. And it turns out we're not nearly as good as women at breastfeeding. But we're very, very good at the baby calming part. And so that's terrific because we can really support our partners in that way. And, you know, we can take care. We, we want to help. It's not like men don't want to help. We want to, but we want to be successful at it. So we can be a lot more than diaper changers. So what is it that men are doing better or different than their wives? Um, they swallow a little bit tighter. They mm -hmm. shush a little bit louder. They've got longer, stronger arms mm -hmm. to do the little jiggly stuff. But uh, especially with guys, I mean, they're not usually going to read a 250-page book. Um, and to be honest with, like I said, it, men or women, I mean, the way you learn these techniques is much better by watching the DVD. The book's a good book, and it's got all sorts of interesting anthropology and, and, and lots and lots of facts and talks about more about these techniques and, and how they were evolved over time. But in terms of really learning the technique, um, it's watching the DVD usually once or twice people watch it. 
and having this special CD of white noise. And CDs are great because you can use it in the car when the baby's fussy. You can use it when you're traveling or visiting the grandparents. And the baby, just like carrying your pillow with you different places, the baby feels, oh yeah, yeah. Becomes like an auditory teddy bear almost yeah. that comforts your baby. So let's look at the uh, newest edition of your book, mm -hmm. National Bestseller. What's, what's new about it? New examples, new research? What's, what's new about this edition? Well, um, there are a couple of things I knew about it, but the biggest new thing about it is a new paradigm, a new kind of a way for parents to understand how to approach the behavior of their child that I call red light, yellow light, and rather green light, yellow light, and red light. Mm -hmm. And what that means is it shows you how to encourage green light behaviors. Green light behaviors are things that you like, mm -hmm. cooperation, patience, turn-taking. How do I get my kid to do more of the things I like? That's really what we spend 80% of our parenting trying to do. Um, then uh, 10 or 15% of what you're doing is trying to stop annoying things, or what I call yellow-like behaviors. Things you want to stop, but they're not urgent. So things like whining and nagging and you know dawdling and things like that that drive you kind of crazy, but they're not anything that are emergent that you have to stop. And then the 5 or 10% are red-like behaviors. And those are things that are dangerous, or aggressive, or that violate just an important rule in your family. And your family might be, we don't jump on the couch. Not that it's dangerous, or not that it's aggressive, but you just don't want them. We don't eat in the living room. You know, and you're allowed as a parent to make those rules and, yeah. and enforce those. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the one of the big new things. And and it's a it's a better organized book, I think, in terms of laying out mm -hmm. the different um, tools that work the best with toddlers. Mm -hmm. With the baby work. The key concept is the concept of the fourth trimester, which is this weird idea that babies are born three months before they're ready for the world. And the first three months you're holding them and rocking them and, um, and imitating the uterus, and that's what works. The paradigm shift or the key concept for parents to get their minds around with toddlers mm -hmm. is that toddlers, and by toddlers I mean eight-month-old to five-year-old or mm -hmm. so, toddlers are not so much little children as they are little cavemen. Yeah, I was going to ask you yeah. about the cavemen. <laughs> well, I know it's, it's kind of a joke. And, you know, the toddler in the Flintstones was named Bam Bam. And, but, you know, the truth of the matter is it's more than a joke. It is the critical, pivotal concept for understanding your job as a parent of a toddler because they are not civilized. They are not. You hope by the time they're four or five they're civilized. But in the beginning, they, they spit and scratch. They scream. They'll grab your hair. They'll pee anywhere they want. I mean... They don't come civilized, and your job, really, as a parent, is to civilize your child. And so, if you understand that they're little cavemen, then when they spit in your face, you're not going to take immediate offense that you might if a teenager spit in your face. You're going to understand this is just a caveman, back off. But that concept becomes so much more important in terms of understanding how to communicate with them. because. Cave, we, there are two halves of the brain, the right half and the left half. We live on the left half of the brain. The left half is language and logic and problem solving and composure, impulse control. The right half is um, being impulsive, a stress reaction, um, bouncing to the music, with little, which little kids do well, and nonverbal communication, mm -hmm. tone of voice, look on your face, gestures. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out toddlers do not have a well-developed left brain. They don't understand your language. They don't understand your logic. They're not reasonable, and they're not good at impulse control. 
but their right brain is great. They are terrific at understanding your tone of voice or the look on your face or recognizing a face or a place. A toddler, I mean, I would have a one-year-old coming to my office. As soon as they saw the parking lot, they'd start to scream. That's pretty mature, you know. You can wave to a one-year-old and they understand that you're going to say bye, you're going bye-bye. Mm. But to say to a child, I'm going to leave now, they're not going to understand that for another year. I'm going to leave now is left brain message. Yep. Waving your hand or sign language is a right brain message. So it turns out all of us shut off our left brain when we get upset. All of us. Matter of fact, we have a term for that in our language. We call it going ape, right? Yeah. You know, we all dial down. We're not logical. We're not reasonable. We're, we're not eloquent when we get upset. We <gasps> become right brain, you know, kind of primitives. And the more upset you get, the more you go ape. Well, toddlers start out primitive. So when they get upset and their left brain dials down, they go Jurassic on you. This is critically important because you have to then change the way you speak to them. If you speak to someone whose left brain is turned off and you're saying, sweetheart, I know you want to go outside, but we can't go outside. It's raining too much. You know, it's loving, it's logical. It's a great way to talk in general, but when someone's upset, man, that just makes them more upset. So speak to me like a caveman. So I'm I'm having a little meltdown here. Okay. Something oh. is not going well. I'm in a grocery store. I can see you're very upset. And so that's not going <laughs> to no, work. No, no, no. Ow, she just <laughs> <Yeah>. slammed me. <laughs> but, um, okay, so there are three steps to translate anything you want into your child's primitive language. And, in fact, we use the same language with upset adults. Mm -hmm. Short phrases, repetition, and mirroring some of their feeling. Not all of their feeling. I call it the sweet spot. You kind of get some, not too little, not too much. If you were upset with me, if I just kept you waiting and you're really furious, you've got places to go, I might... I'm thinking me as a three-year-old. Well, first I'm saying as an adult. Okay. As an adult, you do this as well. I mean, that's the amazing thing. This is communication 101. The concepts in The Happiest Toddler work with little kids, older kids, adults. You'll use it with your parents. I mean, the fact of the matter is that um, when, if you were upset with me, really upset, I might go, look, I know, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm really, really sorry, please. No, 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 I get it, I know, I understand. It's kind of gibberish, I mean, it's a lot of repetition, tiny phrases, and I'm trying to show you uh, with my, the energy in my voice that I get it, with my gestures that I get it. I won't say to you, oh, that's very frustrating, I too would be upset. You know, I mean, actually, the words are okay, but you want to slam me when I say that. And I'm not going to go all the way up, oh no, oh my God, I kept going, oh please, please forgive me, oh I'm so sorry. You know, then I'm yeah. sucking all the air out of the room. So it's the same thing with toddlers. When they get upset, you want to use short phrases, repetition, and a little of their feelings. So it might be, say the child wants to go outside, but it's raining, you might go, outside, 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 you want to go, this is like a two-year-old, yeah. uh, you want to go, you want to go outside now, five, six times before they even look at you. And they go, well, were you talking to me? I was trying to get outside. They didn't even hear you the first five times. Mm -hmm. And then you can say, you want to go outside now? Now, you have to repeat it. Mm -hmm. Too often as parents, we don't do that. We get jump right to the message. Outside, outside. It's raining, sweetheart. You'll get all wet. I mean, that's important information. Yeah. But your child's not ready to hear that yet. Um, or we do it even worse, which is that we try to calm them by being calm ourselves. Sweetheart, I know you want the ball, but it's Bobby's turn. We have to share. You get a turn. Remember we talked about sharing. Bobby gets a turn. 
And then they're going, it's my ball. You know, they go, do you not understand how bad I want that ball, mom? Let me say that louder and harder because the way you're talking sounds like some kind of psychiatrist. And you don't get how much I want this. Now, here's the weirdest thing about So what would you tell the kid about the ball or the toy? Um, If it's a two-year-old fighting over the ball, I go, ball, ball, you want it. You want it. Again, short phrases, repetition four, five, six, seven times, and mirroring some of their feeling. If the child's not that upset, I won't mirror that much feeling to get into the sweet child. You, You want that ball now. You want that now. You say, give it to me. You say, give it me the ball, Bobby, because you want it now. You don't want to wait. It's really no different than what you would do with an upset teenager. If the teenager wants the car keys, but you don't want to give it to them, and they didn't clean their room or whatever, you might say, look, I know you want the... I know you were looking forward to it. You wanted it. You really wanted to go. And I'm sorry I can't give it to you. I wish I could. I'd love to give you the car. I can't give it to you. As much as I know you want it, I can't give it to you because you didn't clean the room. So I repeated seven or eight times there. And you know what? That kind of feels like I'm getting it, but I'm still not going to cave. I'm still going to be the disciplinarian. I want you to understand this point because when people hear this technique, they go, that sounds weird. I don't know if I could do that. It's and baby especially talk. doing it in public, I think, as well. But here's the funny thing. Parents do this in public all the time. You do this. We all do this when kids are very happy. When a child is very happy, we automatically speak toddlerese. If a three-year-old climbs to the top of the slide for the first time and is beaming at you with pride and, and a feeling of exuberance, do you say, a very good sweetheart, I am proud, I will tell father. Or do you say, you did it, you did it, you did it, good job, wow, good job, good job. That's toddlerese. Short phrases, repetition, and mirroring some of their feeling. But when kids get upset, we turn into emotional zombies. We go in the other direction. The child's upset, and we try to calm them by being more calm ourselves. So as the more upset they get, we're going, no, 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 calm down, calm down, no, honey. Calm down. You'll get a turn to. No, don't get upset. And when we do that, they go, you don't understand how I feel. But they need us to understand. So they accelerate it even more, get more upset. Do you believe in things like timeouts? Do you believe in punishments? Do you believe in... Consequences. Consequences. Sure. I believe in rewarding good behavior with your attention um, and rewarding even halfway good behavior because you want to encourage them in baby steps to do better and better. But absolutely, when you have red light behaviors, when you have serious things, you know, smacking somebody, uh, banging with the, with the pole against the window or things that could be dangerous, you have to stop that child right away. And that includes timeouts, absolutely. Here's one because I travel a lot and I see a lot of, of babies and kids on airplanes, which is a little bit of a constrained situation. What's what I would call an emergency situation. Mm-hmm. What, what do you do? Oh my God, my wife is so impossible when we're traveling because she's going up to everybody. My husband's a pediatrician. He could, could you know, you know. And the <laughs> truth is, you have full time job on airplanes. <laughs> yeah, I do, you know something. It's it. It's uh, I've gotten applause several times. Let me put it that way, because these techniques. 50% of the time, you can stop a temper outburst in seconds. Again, if you do it right, if you do it almost right, it could totally not work. You have to get in the sweet spot. If you're too, if you say, I know you want the ball, I know you want the ball, you really want the ball. If you're doing repetition short phrases without that little bit of emotion, Doesn't it may totally not work. 56% of the time, it'll stop the temper tantrum in seconds. And and then there are other techniques that you can teach patients in a day, even to a one-year-old. You can 
prevent 50 to 90% of temper tensions from ever happening. However, they are cavemen. And there's a limit to what you can accomplish, especially when you take Tarzan and make him be in an airplane, which is so confining. So some of these kids won't calm down in seconds. And what you got to do is you got to get them up. You got to walk up and down the aisle. You got to go play back in the back alley. You got to bring some toys along with you. You have to be reasonable um, so that you understand there's only so much of a limit that you can accomplish with good parenting techniques. And part of it is by, you know, before you get in the airplane, run around a lot, make sure they're well fed, you know, um, make sure they've, they've napped. Um, it's not always such a great idea to expect them to nap on the plane because if they get overtired and they won't fall asleep then it could be a disaster. You mentioned a word I wanted to follow up on, the word fed. What are foods that help and foods that hurt a toddler's behavior? Like we hear a lot about sugar. Is mm -hmm. Should sugar be cut out of a toddler that's having a lot of tantrums? Is that one of the things to go look at? It's certainly something to look at. Every child's different. Mm -hmm. Um, some kids it doesn't make a bit of a difference. Other kids are sensitive to colors, uh, artificial colors, artificial flavors, sugar. So it's something to consider at least. Um, another thing that certainly can flip kids out is caffeine or um, a, a chemical called theobromine, which is in chocolate. So chocolate, chocolate milk, iced tea, cola, um, those things can really have a bad effect on a child's behavior. Um, so. Uh, but kids are, you know, they have their own opinions, and uh, you know, you 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 can, you can win the battle of not giving them candy and and soda. I mean, you're in control of that. You just can't win the battle of making them eat good food, you know, because they shut their mouths to the broccoli, and it can be, it if, can be a challenge. If you had toddlers today, and they were your toddlers, what would you not be feeding them or not be giving them to drink? Um, I wouldn't be giving a lot of juice. Um, I would be giving, you know what, here's an easy thing, and it's so cheap. Um, there's something called sunshine tea. I don't know if you've heard that. That's yeah. kind of a southern yeah. idea. But if you just take a tea bag, put it in room temperature water, and let it sit on the counter for an hour, it turns into tea. You don't have to boil the water. So use peppermint tea or chamomile tea, a nice herbal tea, so it doesn't have caffeine. And peppermint and chamomile kind of sometimes have like a calming effect also. Yeah. That's a lovely thing you can do. And if you want to sweeten it a little bit, if your child really likes it sweet, you could put a little apple juice in it or a little bit of sugar in it. Mm -hmm. um, but in our culture, we're getting way too much sugar. We're getting way too many empty calories. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have a lot of junk food around. I wouldn't have a lot of chips and, and, um, and things like that that are empty calories. Um, and what I would encourage my child, my toddler to do is to eat a speck of, if, I mean, if they don't like vegetables, you know, I'll have this macaroni and cheese for them, but first they have to eat this microscopic speck of broccoli. And if they don't want to eat it, that's fine. You know, this is just a negotiating deal. This is business, you know. I know you you have a business background. This is negotiation 101. You know, all you have to do is eat this micron of broccoli. You don't want to, it's okay. And I'll just move away this delicious macaroni and cheese. And you can think about it. Okay, see you later. You know, and you walk away from the deal. Eventually, the child's going to go, okay, I'll eat the broccoli because yeah. it's, it's so tiny. And then, oh, good job. Here's the macaroni and cheese. And then over the weeks, you build it up to, you know, two microns of broccoli, et cetera. Yeah. So kids will absolutely eat vegetables, and they will learn to do that if parents can be a little bit more cagey and wise negotiators. Harvey, what are two or three things, just to end off, that people would be surprised to know actually make a toddler happy? 
Oh my God, there are some wonderful, wonderful simple techniques. One, for example, I mean, everyone likes praise. We all like to be um, encouraged. Um, that doesn't mean that you jump up and down and light off fireworks. It could praise, most of the time, is very understated. Huh, wow, I like all the red you use in that color. Or, boy, you picked up your toys fast. Some kind of gently stated, you know, positive observation. But a wonderful way to make your praise even more powerful is something called gossiping. And gossiping means to say the praise as a secret, not to the child, but to allow the child to overhear. So you whisper to the teddy bear, hey, Mr. Teddy, Bobby picked up his toys really fast. And Bobby's listening into this. Here's the weird thing. All of us believe what we overhear more than what told, is told directly to us. And if someone says, hey, you look great today, yeah, that feels pretty good. But if you hear them out in the hallway saying, hey, Harvey or Ariane looks great today, you go, there's no ulterior motive. I really yeah. believe that. So you praise your child, and then a few minutes later, you whisper it to the bird outside or something, and your child goes, hey, I'm hearing that a lot lately from people. You literally make your praise five times more effective. Yeah. So that's, that's a, a great little trick that parents can do. Harvey, the way that we end off all of our interviews here on the show is we ask all of our, all of our experts the exact same three questions, and they're three questions specifically about change. So here's the first question. What is the belief that you go to during times of change in your own life? What is the belief that keeps you grounded, stable, the thing that, that you go to? Um, that I'm very lucky. And so um, rather than seeing the glass half empty, I see the glass half full. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I've had health problems and I've had you know enough tragedies in my life. I mean, but I don't think of my life as being tragic at all. I mean, I think that I'm so lucky for the things that I have. And so it's that balanced perspective. Here's the other one. What is the, fill in the sentence, the best thing about change is? Um, well, it reminds me of my mother's, my mother's, it's not quite fill in the sentence, but my mother's line, uh, she taught me, look, Harvey, things either change or rot. So it's your choice. <laughs> so the best thing about change is that you're alive, you know, and that you're in the game. Yeah. Here's the other one. What is the best change that you've ever made? Um, I would have to say um, it was getting into the marriage that I'm in and, and changing from, you know, um, from my bachelor life into the, my married life with my wife. Beautiful. Well, yeah. we acknowledge your wife. She's certainly a lucky lady as well. You're very sweet. Harvey, Thank it's a so real much. pleasure. Thanks mm -hmm. for all of these tips. I can't wait to have children. Or like, <laughs> go take care of like, yeah, someone Go find some kids. screaming kid on the yeah, street. No, yeah. absolutely. Thank you. What a pleasure. So for more information about Dr. Harvey Karp, his CDs that he mentioned about white noise, his DVDs, and his two best-selling books, please visit his website at thehappiestbaby.com and obviously also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever products are sold. You've been listening to Change Nation and another fascinating interview. For more information, more interviews, please check back in with us at first30days.com. I'm Ariane. Thanks for listening.